are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Colombian, psychedelic, ambivalent. Colombian composer and soundmaker James Diaz, currently based in New York and Philadelphia, composes music that strives to create unique sonic textures, sound masses, and interactive environments. Deeply influenced by the concept of psychedelia and psychedelic rock bands, his music also draws from elements of architecture, Latin American landscapes, graphic design, and photography. Well, uh, James, really good to meet you. Um, we're gonna talk. We're gonna look at two of your your pieces today, and uh, I wanted to start out with your piece "Never Was the Way," and um, this is for alto flute, bass clarinet, a soprano voice, percussion, violin, and cello. So how did this how did this work come about? Like why did you write it? Yeah, so actually thank you Robert for the invitation. Um yeah, never was the way uh that was in the beginning of 2019. So uh I wrote that piece for Tac Ensemble. Um but they are only five players. So while I was listening to, you know, some of those pieces that they performed before, I feel that I need something like especially in the low register mm -hmm. so i went for the cello uh this kind of seats instrument was like kind of uh my ideal ensemble for that piece uh so it's for bass clarinet uh cello a vocal part would be either soprano or mezzo whatever some vocal part and flute and bass clarinet and um, yeah so that piece is around 15 minutes is divided into three parts. Uh, in the middle is like a drone section. I wanted to make some kind of drone ideas that I, I, I was able to do before, but I was I, I was curious, you know, to do this kind of exploration uh, around the idea of the drone. And then, but in general, the piece, that piece in particular, <clears throat> and this is kind of hard to explain or just talk about one of my pieces, because in a way, all my pieces are connected. Um, it could be either because I use the recordings and then I get the electro electronics uh, or the tape part for another for a new piece, or because I literally take sections and then I resample those sections, recompose those sections, or because sometimes I just use the same <laughs> material as it is. I just change uh, the order or the contents. Mm -hmm. Um, so for that piece, uh, I took another piece that I have that is for violin, cello, and piano. So I took sections from that trio piano, piano piece, but, and then I started, you know, like adding layers. So that was like my main, or one of the first uh, steps I was like adding layers of sound on top to see what happened, how we perceive the sounds if I need to change something or not, if it sounds new for me or not. So I was kind of, you know, exploring the, the idea uh, and the idea of the, you know, especially the position of those ideas. Uh, so never was the way the first, um, like, drawing or the first draft uh, is just the interactions that they have to, to the perform. Uh, I wish I could share the score. The score is on YouTube. The score follower channel. If yeah, yeah. There, I mean, you, it's just a beautiful score that you have on uh, score follower, and 
You know, one of the things I was noticing as I was I, I watched the score um, and listened to the music is you give uh, so much agency to the performers. I mean, a lot of times uh, you give them kind of a choice um, whether they like have uh, choose between the A material or the B material. I was wondering, actually, in in those moments when they have that choice of like the A material or B material, um, are they able to switch back and forth or in one performance, do they have to choose like, I'm just going to play A this time? Uh, it's the latter. So they have to choose okay. one. Um, because uh, if you see, if they choose, they, uh, let's say they pick A, what they select will change uh, what other people will play. Not always, but in some cases, they are, they are, they are kind of connected. So they are linked in a way. That is like a, something that I've been exploring to see, you know, how, you know, farther I could go with that, that, that idea. So for instance, if one instrument plays, you know, I don't know, um, the section A, maybe the, the flute will play a retardando instead of accelerando. Very simple, like kind of actions, very yeah. simple actions, but in a way it changes how we perceive form in a kind of a small scale, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't happen, you know, for the whole piece. It's just a couple of sections because I was still, you know, testing. <laughs> I have other pieces where I was able to explore more that idea where basically the entire piece is based on that kind of uh, interactions. Wow, that, I mean, that, that's that's so interesting. I'm, I'm going to make a... Uh, I, you you may be aware of of these books or not, but um, the choose your own adventure books. Have you ever heard of those? Yes. Yep. And I'm sure like um, someone has made that comparison to you already with this, right? No, not really. No. Okay. <laughs> no idea. But but yeah, th that's that's so interesting that you know that basically the choice of someone else affects you know the interaction or the reaction of of another person i you, you said that um in other pieces you were able to kind of explore that more fully do you ever do you have just like chains of interactions like if this person does that then this person does that and if that second person has to do that then that means you have to do this that kind of thing yeah kind of actually wow. there are sections or you know like um my first uh, draft ideas where I find contradictions because I don't know how to <laughs> reflect that idea like in the score, you know, uh -huh. because we have this space, you know, one page limitation uh, because if they don't see what is going on, so how, you know, they can perform or interact in a way. Yeah. Uh, but about the similarities, you know, in other areas, actually by the end of 2008, when I was, you know, imagining this piece or those ideas, that was when Netflix released Bandernatch. I don't know if you know that movie, where I you know. basically select what is going on next. Okay. So there is a character, you know, and then you use your smartphone control and then say, I don't know, this is the breakfast, This that's the first scene, and you select, oh, I want to get, I don't know, granola or Cheetos, with meal or when, I don't know, Greek yogurt. Mm -hmm. And then you choose one option. And if you choose one, then the whole movie change. Wow. Yeah. Because uh, that, 
I, I think that's the that's the really interesting part about this is because I mean you're you know I think usually when we think about an aleatoric piece you know which you do use a lot of aleatoric structures in this in this piece we often think about like okay well you know uh it's going to be more or less the same formally but the details will change you're talking about even the form of of this can be slightly aleatoric i mean that's that's kind of like that earl brown idea from from available forms or something like that yeah early brown is this kind of composer that i you know i really like and and I'm really passionate for his music and philosophies um, in terms of form, actually, and sound as well. And, and I'm glad that you, you know, brought that up, that comes of, of aleatory uh, ideas. Um, and I guess that I have a very different opinion on what is the meaning of aleatory uh-huh. instead of indeterminating, in, indeterminacy. Uh, I feel that in the States, most people use that aleatory word as just in general, like mm-hmm. every time that we have a box material, something that is random, we call it aleatoric. But in reality, some most part of the time we have those ideas or those bots notation in a linear structure. Exactly, yeah. So I don't see those events as aleatory. I see those events as indeterminated because we somehow have this linearity there. Mm-hmm. And I see aleatory more in terms of changing the actual form, you know, That's when we don't have a fixed idea of form. Like, I don't know, some, uh, these pieces by Piano for by um, Etzelhausen, mm-hmm. where we use chance operations or other, idea, or other you know, um, techniques to move the material. Then is when I see uh, the difference between indeterminacy and aleatory uh, elements. Um, that's interesting because so, in a way, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, so, for instance, like I, um, a piece like Stockhausen's uh, Zyklus for for mm-hmm. percussion. Um, so that would be a piece where you both have aleatory, meaning that the form can be totally changed at any given performance based on the whim of the performer but in the score it also has indeterminate structures because it does use like box notation or graphic notation or something like that so that's the distinction you're making Mm, yeah exactly and i guess that is important to have that distinction because for me at least it has different philosophical uh, social connotations and Mm -hmm. meaning as well which is that that's what is behind my ideas of exploring interactions and behavior. I usually write, you know, this kind of performance notes and I have like a list of interactions <laughs> or behaviors of performance that I, that I like calling. Um, and I guess that when I see and try to use a specific vocabulary to express those ideas, I do feel that it's important to have those distinctions, you know? Uh, it really clarifies, and then we just don't generalize about anything that we see, like a bot notation, yeah, um, or something like that. Yeah. The uh, the middle movement. Um, I wanted to. Uh, you you said this this piece has three sections or three movements. Can you talk about that middle section and how that works on the on the uh, video? You know, it looks like you have six modules kind of laid out in a circle, and they're all. Uh, it looks like different um, score, you know, just like pages of score. 
How do the performers kind of navigate through that movement? Yeah, that movement is this kind of sections or pieces where the score actually doesn't exist. Uh, it's based on parts. So every single part has the same, yeah, like all the parts actually have has the same uh, layout. It's like a circle. Mm-hmm. They have seats, events, and they are free to navigate uh, between them. So if I am the flute, I could start in a, uh, whenever I want, whatever I want. And then I just repeat that event once. A, every single event has a different timing. So, but in total, they share the same time. So it's like a space to perform. So they have, it's, it's like around five minutes mm-hmm. in total. So one event for the flute is 30 seconds. Uh, the other one is 35. And in total, it's the same amount of time. Uh, so they play together, but they don't coordinate to each other. Um, the idea is that they don't even agree <laughs> uh, on the speed. They are free to um, to play at any speed. Um, based on the speed, they could play more times one of those events uh, and so forth. So the idea is that it's based on the parts, the individual parts. They don't share anything. Uh, but in reality, they share the pitch because it's the same note. It's the right, note yeah. A. Yeah, I mean, that that particular moment kind of reminded me of, um, you know, certainly the, the the graphic nature of the score. But now that now that you say it's basically just based on parts and the score really isn't the score, you you just made that to like that's a representation of kind of what they're seeing. But um, uh, but not necessarily how like how they would uh, even organize um the mm-hmm. piece in in performance but you know the, the, there are aspects of the score that kind of remind me of George Crumb and and that particular movement reminds me of the middle movement of uh like Morton Feldman's Rothko Chapel you know where it's just this kind of floating amorphous something but constantly changing I I I mean those are just associations I have I don't know if either of those composers had any influence on this, but um, I mean, maybe mm-hmm. you can speak, speak to that. I guess like. that, yeah, uh, actually both composers. <laughs> and they are great. Um, and you know that Cran, he was a professor here at Penn. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I didn't know. Like I knew when I moved to Philadelphia and then I was doing the interview and then I was like, oh, he was a professor here. I didn't plan, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I am an admirer of his scores and the music because I feel that everything is related, you know. In a way, it's true that the score maybe doesn't mean that much when we are just listening to the pieces. Um, however... Me as a composer and listener, so I am part of the community, you know. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I go and also listen to the piece. We have a small community that look at the scores. So in a way, the score is actually important, you know, in a way. Maybe not in general, but the score is something that we use. Um, and it's true that maybe the phone won't change that much, like the quality of the sound. That's true. Uh, but maybe, I don't know, it means something for the ones that are writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
you know, those ideas. And But yeah, especially the chapel piece, I need to look at the score because I, I have, you know, heard that piece like just by listening to it. And I so many people by listening to other, other of my pieces have brought that piece like to my really? attention. Like, and so I know other Feldman piece way better than that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially this, the Never Was The Way, the idea of seats entities was very important. So not only seats instruments, but also seats events in the middle. So the number of seats was something, again, very important. And I guess that that's very crumb each. <laughs> yeah. Numbers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Using uh, numerology and, and layers and layers and layers of meaning. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you brought up something at the very beginning of this that I wanted to get back to. You know, you were saying that uh, a lot of your music is related because you will kind of remix, recompose, take, take things from older stuff. So um, is, is your practice kind of like your music is just one long evolution if you are or or do you ever kind of break out of that cycle and say okay I've done that I'm gonna do something completely different now like how does that work um it's a good question so I will say that we are basically writing just one piece uh-huh. you know, I used to say that kind of things um but in my my practice um, there are pieces that you see that they are way, you know, very different. Like, I don't know, a piece that I wrote, let's say, six years ago. It sounds very differently, you know, very different. But if you really look all of the, you know, tiny, tiny changes, but you see the relationship. So, uh, so to answer if they are very different, of course, uh, like without knowing what is in the middle, you know, the history or the, as I said before, those changes. Um, but yeah, there are some pieces where what I do is like, for instance, I take the material, I manipulate the material until at one point that is almost impossible to recognize the material. Um, and then when we hear that sound or that development idea, I use that idea as, okay, this is now the new <laughs> section or the new uh, without history, so to speak, uh-huh. without any kind of... Uh, because we have this idea always of development that I am fighting <laughs> constantly. <laughs> um, so we have always this idea that we start with something simple, you know, and then we develop. That's how we teach music or... That's how we hear also music, this kind of evolution, something that is in progress all the time. Uh, but I ain't really like feeling that in my case is the opposite. I feeling that I have uh, interest in going backwards. <laughs> yeah. Like approaching, getting points that are actually simpler. Uh, and, then, and then the idea of using previous material actually gave me that kind of opportunity to maybe simplify something, you know? So in, in order to write a piece of music that, I don't know, is 10 minutes, I have the tendency to write even twice. 
not only in size, but also like in layers. And then I start cleaning and cleaning. So I, I have this tendency to go from like big picture, so to speak, to very small, instead of from the very, very idea, basic idea and going uh, to a point of development or evolution. So you're, yeah, you're saying that, you know, you will, you'll overwrite and then kind of filter down into the form. I mean, it's almost, you know, you, that, that almost brings to mind, like the idea of like a sculptor or something, you know, you have this big massive form and you just kind of take it, take it down and, and, you know, kind of excise different, different parts of it so that you can get down to that, that thing that you're, that you're really after. Yeah, I feel that I um like sculpting sound um is a really good, you know, way to describe uh, what I do. Um but I, I guess that it's also this kind of, you know, in rock and roll they compose, I don't know, twenty pieces, twenty songs, and they, they only release ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very common practice, you know, they have this, you know, the idea of production and then they select on only what is the best. And then they would release the other ones as a B-side. Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you got to give but the fans idea, something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, I feel very, you know, close to that kind of tradition. Yeah, so I think that that's essentially um, my, my process for in general. Yeah, I mean, the way you were, the way you were kind of talking about it, you know, like uh, using, you know, recombining different materials and then and 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 filtering them down to into more simple forms but the old you know the old piece still exists um it really brought to mind for me you know some there there are definitely some visual artists that do stuff like that you know like um like for instance matthew barney um you know he will uh make uh, a film and then also have sculptures based on the f- based on what's in the film and also like have music that comes out of it and all of these things are separate in themselves they're complete in themselves but when you consider them together as a collection they they form this like larger artwork and it seems like that's kind of what you're doing with your music you know you these things are separate but they all come from this kind of central place within you. And when you consider the entire thing, which, you know, uh, like the entire thing can't be considered for a long time, you know, because you're, you know, you're just going to keep adding to this, to this, uh, um, this, as you say, this like one piece that you're writing, Mm -hmm. but it taken Mm -hmm. together, it's like you have this gallery of works that all, share things but have their own individuality and i I, yeah i think that's really interesting thanks so i guess that also um maybe it's a reaction or something to the idea of new ideas i guess like looking like crazy for new material or for a new motive or i don't know for a new core like we have i don't know this maybe Again, a generalization or something. But in the academy, academia, we have this idea of something new, the idea of originality. Um, but and then I always, you know, been, I've been wondering, like, what happened if we do the opposite? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what would be the opposite to do something new? Like repeating, maybe something new or stealing? Because literally getting something and reuse it 
might be maybe the opposite. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess that also relates, you know, again to to ideas of progress, maybe, mm-hmm. and that I found quite um, interesting, of course, um, but maybe more constant in our traditions and in our analysis than maybe what it should be, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, we have this tendency to give the, the importance to uh, new discoveries, of course, in science. And, but my question is, like, how we relate to those new ideas without the past, you know? It's like, it's literally impossible. And, and it's interesting that nowadays that people are, you know, like, going back the past of famous, you know, people, like looking what happened, what they did. Mm-hmm. And it's like we, every single day we have news related to, oh, he didn't do it alone. He was part of a team. And in that team was more people that are not being represented, you know. Mm-hmm. And we have thousands of examples, not only in science, but also in art, you know, like the influence of a teacher or the influence of one musician for a composer. So, and then that is, I guess that is really important that, we also, you know, um, have that kind of um, ideas around us, you know, the importance of the collective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I want to get uh, back to back to this uh, piece specifically. You know, um, you have obviously we're, we're saying there there are uses of indeterminacy and aleatory in this work. You and you have varying uses of time and like synchronicity in the work you know the first movement and some of the third movement utilize even multiple tempos and rubato and and a kind of unsynchronized ensemble treatment but the third movement in particular you know contains very synchronized ensemble passages and these are usually uh repeated you know i think many students uh, especially of the last like 30 years or something are told not to repeat things exactly, you know, or not even to repeat at all. Like the idea of putting act an actual like repeat sign in the music is like, Oh, you can't do that. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, unless they're coming from a kind of like post minimal or, or, or some kind of, some kind of aesthetic like that. But I'm wondering for you where using repetition or, almost rather calling them like loops. Where is that coming from for you? Yeah, the idea of loops. Um, I think that I discovered the music of uh, Bernard Lann. Uh, he's a German, no, Austrian composer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uses a lot of, you know, uh, repeat bars, actually, uh, or repetition in general. But his ideas of repetitions are, you know, very different from, I don't know, the Steve Reich ideas. Sure. And, the sonic out- outputs are also very different. Um, but the whole idea of repetition, it's been in my mind, like, I don't know, maybe since the beginning. Um, especially for that thing that you said, like, uh, we have that kind of narrative of hating repeating things. Mm-hmm. Because again, this speaks like, oh, it means that you don't have the technique to develop something or to create something new which I don't think that is true, you know? And, and then also there is another narrative there. It's like, 
oh, it's because it's close or sounds like pop or rock music. Uh-huh. So and that is a bad reference, quarter uh, So there are so many r- narratives there against repetition. Except when we talk about the geniuses of repetition, you know, it's like for the students it's a bad idea, but Steve Wright can do it, John Ans can do it, and many other ones that they don't care about these things, they can do it. Um, because at the end it's a way of expression, you know, and who is who to say how we should express or not. It's a very th- very different conversation when the professor has a reason to say, maybe you are not repeating or you are repeating because of this reason, have you considered other options um, and, and so forth. So at the end, the idea of repetition in that particular moment, it was like a necessity for the piece, I guess. Um, so we have, in the beginning, we have the interactions and then we, the interactions kind of push the attention to no time because they have different ideas of timing. Uh And then for me, the next step will be literally no time. And that was the idea of the drone. And then the idea of the drone, uh, we have actually just two behaviors. We continue the drone. We go back to the idea of interactions. Or we have another idea is like we play like a loop. Right, so those are like in general the three tendencies that or options that we encounter, like in general, really general terms, you know. Um, and I found that the loop was very, you know, like striking. So I went for that idea of we're gonna play now together. Uh, you were having fun playing individually. It sounds interesting. We don't know who is playing, but now I'm gonna have again. I don't know who is playing. But now we are gonna do it together, you know. Yeah. And and by doing it together, I mean very short loops, um, which is like contrasts to this idea of drone something that we don't have the beginning or the end. And and then the whole third movement starts not only when those kind of very short sections, but it's also fast in that sense that. It really brings the listener attention to time, you know. Before the five minutes drone section, we are just there without, you know, any kind of expectation or maybe we are just bored because it's going nowhere. But then when we have these very short loops, the idea of time is like, is back, you know, to our bodies, you know. And that section is very groovy. (laughs) It has like a kind of group there. And which I, you know, very interesting in this kind of energy, you know, that we have uh, when we use loops, especially. And I like the idea of calling them loops uh, because that's how I see them, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think for, I mean, even myself, you know, uh, I think the training that pretty much everyone receives in electronic music at this point and learning how to use a DAW and being able to like, you know, take those little sections of audio and loop them. You know, I, you know, when people, because I do a lot of electronic music, um, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, does that really affect your acoustic writing? I'm like, absolutely. How could it not affect Mm -hmm. my acoustic writing? So yeah, that idea of, you know, thinking about them not just as repetition, but actually literally as loops. Because the thing about, like, you know, you look at, uh, 
like a Steve Steve Reich thing, you know, and it's usually these one, two to four bar repetitions that evolve over time. But when you think about loops in particular, like loops can be anything, you know, can just be like micro sound that you're looping to create this bigger structure. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's really interesting. What is uh, what does the title mean for this piece? Um, never was the way. I think that is really it relates to the idea of choosing A or B. Okay. Um, usually for you know chamber music ensemble pieces, uh, that's also another conversation, I guess. But we have this idea that we have a lot of time to perform these pieces in contrast to orchestra music, orchestra music, you know, where definitely we don't have time, you know. Mm-hmm. But in reality, we don't have that much time either. <laughs> uh, so it means that they have to pick just one option and they go for that option. But the piece has another whole different, you know, like size, like what happened if they pick the other one? So I think that that's basically the idea of the title, like this existential question of what would happen if, you know, they they have a different kind of path. You know, yeah, we could go left, we could go right. Our lives will mm-hmm. be completely different no matter which way we go. Yeah, so that's... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who are we going to hear on this uh, recording? So it's Tuck Ensemble. Um... The performance was here at University of Pennsylvania, um, and yeah, that's the premiere, actually. Awesome. So this is Never Was The Way.
So uh, let's move on to the second piece of yours that we're going to look at. This is retro for orchestra and electronics. Um, we're just going to listen to the first movement. Uh, the entire work is about 27 minutes long. And uh, this is uh, Linnaeus Rojas, which just means red line, right? Red lines. Yep. Yep. So um, kind of tell me, tell me about this work, you know, why, when did you write it? Why did you write it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, again, this is 2019. It feels like a long time ago. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it was just one year ago, two years ago. Oh my God. Anyway, so, so I composed this piece in 2019. Um, it was written for the Medellin Philharmonic. Philharmonic. Uh, I was selected a composer in residence for that year, which actually was the first time like an or professional orchestra in Colombia like kind of gave that support that kind of opportunity, uh, uh, which I was very you know excited and you know proud of being part of that kind of space. And so the idea was <clears throat> to write a long piece, you know, as part of the session um, and then and then that was also the celebration the 200 something years of independence um, and then so like so many things were you know on the table at that point like that idea of that idea was coming from the orchestra like they want me to try to explore the concept and then also the idea of or a very long piece was important. I guess that timing something that we, you know, have the tendency to ignore. But timing is really crucial when we are writing, you know. Uh, so that was something. Also the format. So I proposed the orchestra to write a piece with electronics. And that was the first time that they actually played a piece with electronics. They never did it before. But you know they were you know willing to do it and they were open and supportive, uh, which is weird sometimes you know mm -hmm. to find this kind of organizations uh, as open as as we wanted. But I guess that is very important also for me to clarify that also the context. Uh, so in Colombia we don't have that much you know like uh, professional chamber music ensembles. Like here in the States, we have Jazz Quarter, we have, I don't know, many ensembles. Like they don't rely on uh, like schools necessarily. So mm -hmm. to play and record music. So they have like a whole, you know, new music uh, sort of community industry there. So in Colombia, the only professional uh, opportunities that we have are actually the orchestras. And we only have five professional orchestras in Colombia for 50 million people. Oh. And of course, they are located in the big cities mm -hmm. like Bogota, Medellin. And so I've been writing for orchestra for uh, like since the beginning, I guess, because of that reason. Like that was the only like format that we see like in the future, at least in the Colombian context, to have a, like a opportunity to hear our music, yeah, or just you know chamber like a solo uh, instrument in a chamber music concert. Uh, 
but in reality it's basically jazz, orchestral music, or if you do experimental stuff, you do your own concert, you know. There are some, there are just one, like, Colombian collective in Bogota, and they have, like, a sort of festival one one once um, per year. So they bring ensembles and this kind of stuff. But it's, it's very, like, small, you know. It's very small, and there is another venue also that brings, in, you know, uh, ensembles, especially, like, chamber, like, duos, but they don't perform our music, you know. Uh-huh. That that's been changing, of course, because we have been, you know, uh, having those conversations. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, essentially, they bring I don't know um, the pianist that is calling the attention, and they they invite them, and they play chamber music, but it's not like new music by Colombian composers. Now they are doing like, of course, they had to play something that by Colombian composers. Yeah. Um, but then, so orchestra is like the first kind of encounter that we have as professional composers. So in a way, it means that they, they are closer to the community than in the States. Uh-huh. That in the States, uh, the orchestras are like the big institutions because they have a lot of money and they have great venues, you know, acoustically speaking and also like in the cities. So the orchestra has this kind of tendency of uh, greatness and pickiness, whatever you call it. Um, that in Colombia is a little bit different, you know. Uh, and I guess that that's, I don't know, it's, it's different for me. feels more like home in a way, that I, the kind of idea of the orchestra. Especially because they are the same teachers that we have in the conservatory. So we see them. Uh, we are more closer in a way. Um I mean, w- while we're so, while we're on the idea of you know orchestra um, in Colombia, do you know like uh, where does the funding come from? Are they is it just through ticket sales, or are they you know uh, kind of subsidized by the government or the universities, or how, how does that work? Because I I would feel like that uh, that detail right there would say a lot about the relationship between the orchestra and Colombian composers. Yeah, actually, you are right. The key is the funding. So the main two orchestras are funded by the either federal or national government uh-huh. or the local government. So the orchestra that has the biggest budget is the Bogota Philharmonic, uh-huh. which has way more than the National Symphonic Orchestra. Because the national you know, government, they don't care. So they just give a little bit uh-huh. of money. And, but that's enough... Uh, for, you know, to hold the National Symphony. And then the Bogota Philharmonic has funding by the local Lady Major. Uh-huh. And they have really good, you know, like really good funding. But it's a- everything, as as I said before, is uh, public money. Uh-huh. It's not private. Yeah. And there are other institutions like in Medellin, like this orchestra in particular, that they have like a mix. They have some public support, and but they also have some private and... Like yeah, private t- kit tickets. Tickets is not that much. It's just like kind of tradition actually. The tickets, and they have basically private funding. Yeah. Yeah. And because in the states, you know, everything is driven by you know donors and ticket sales. You know, so mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not selling tickets, uh, you're not gonna your orchestra is gonna go under, and thus like 
to sell those tickets, you have to play Beethoven and Mahler and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the all the big ones. And thus in the States, you know, composers are kind of kept away. That's so interesting that in Colombia, like you're you're kind of brought up with the orchestra where in the States is it's the complete opposite. We're like, oh, write for your friends, write for these small things. You have more chance of getting it done. And 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 for for you, it seems like the orchestra is more open and available whereas chamber music is just uh is just not uh-huh yeah actually that's true and that is one of those big contradictions <laughs> yeah. that i encounter when i share those stories here in the states um especially when you see uh some composers uh who write for orchestras in europe for instance they have a very different tradition as well mm-hmm. uh, but in, nobody say anything as always about our, you know, South American traditions, <laughs> which, you know, we really need support in terms of public and private. Um, but for now, the environment is very different. And in a way, it's really good for some composers. But again, we are so many composers out there, and there are just a few spaces. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, the space could be great in a way, could be... Um, useful and you know but at, at the same time we have just few spaces you know yeah like as i said before 2019 and that was the first time <laughs> ever an orchestra decided to have this commission program mm-hmm. yeah which is like insane like um but that's our reality so we hope that the program you know keeps going on and um, and then we could have that idea of composer and residence, not only for orchestra, but for other kind of uh, instrumentation or ensembles, um, because that's not, as I say, part of our tradition. One of your one of your adjectives you sent me was was Colombian. Um, are you using that to describe yourself or your music, or is there no separation? I guess that there is no separation. Um, I'm writing what I'm writing because of the things that I had seen, uh-huh. live, live and hear. Um, and this maybe sounds quite like metaphysical or something, but I mean like literally speaking, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like so many people say, oh, when you live in New York, you get used to the noise, which sometimes is a contradiction when you see those famous composers like Feldman. He was living in New York, but he was writing really quiet sounds. Yeah. And and there are other examples of that kind of uh, things. Um, but in Colombia, we have kind of the same kind of multiplicity of sounds around, you know, not only because the cities, but also because we have so many things like clashing. Um, and and I guess that that, in a way, really influenced my, what we call my taste um, or my threshold for noise, for loudness. Mm-hmm for qualities of, I don't know, sweet sound or metallic sound, this kind of stuff. Uh, so I guess that, yeah, Colombian defines both yep, my music and myself. So this piece has electronics in it. Um, what what are the electronics doing? I mean, it seems like when you have an orchestra, you have something so big that you you could 
possibly like represent any sound without electronics. So why did you choose to uh, use electronics in this piece and how are they being controlled and what are they doing? Yeah, so yeah, it's true what you just said that basically an ensemble of 70 musicians can do so many crazy sounds. Um, but there are some limitations, we, especially because they have a different kind of practice, you know, mm. uh, like playing microtones. They don't, for instance, the Goodwins, sometimes they don't know the positions for the microtones or for the multiphonics, or sometimes we don't even have the instruments for the percussion to recreate some kind of sounds. Mm. Um, and the same for the strings, sometimes because they only play, you know, Beethoven, uh, Mahler, they don't have, you know, uh, yet, they don't have this, you know, ability to perform some bowing, very specific bowings, bowing harmonics, these kind of uh, techniques that is more chamber music related. Uh-huh. Um, but and then they are like electronics. Uh, I just did it because first I wanted to try. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, second... I just feel that I really need to use electronics for every single piece. Um, and then the third reason would be is because we really need to uh, expand the nature of the orchestra. And, and by changing the nature, I mean adding another section. And that section is not anymore the percussion. So now we see composers, you know, adding ton- tons of percussion instruments, like anything now is a percussion instrument, yep. uh, which is, you know, very cool and interesting. But we need to keep adding more dynamics, you know, and in the electronics is not, again, no, it's not new, uh, but we need to find, um, to kind of fight in a way, <laughs> to include the electronics as part of the uh, instrumentation. Because that requires that the orchestra has kind of logistics, you know, kind of equipment. And that was the beginning of our conversation with the orchestra. <clears throat> because first, they had never, you know, performed a piece with electronics. They didn't have the equipment <laughs> that I needed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so that was like right from the beginning. So if we're going to do it, we need this, 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 this. So it's not only just writing the piece, but the whole logistics the location of the speakers, how we are going to rehearse this piece, how the audience is going to listen to this piece, and so forth, thousands of more questions, um, that only are possible if the instrumentation, you know, is part of the conversation, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not just writing for um, strings, and that's it. Um, and then the electronics also have... Um, this feeling that is something that is outside of the orchestra. This is still something that outsider, you know, we hear, we see, oh, orchestra and tape, orchestra and electronics. And so th- that's quite interesting and sometimes weird for me that we have that idea of something that doesn't belong to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Because in reality, at least this is my, my point of view, in reality, when we hear a piece of music, we only assign categorizations when we really know, oh, this is a flute. <laughs> because we know we have this background, this history, our knowledge, that is a flute. But the same sound could be a synthesizer, you know? Uh, and who cares what is the difference between a flute or the synthesizer? Maybe the flutists care, you know? 
<laughs> because they are performing, but maybe because they have to breathe, right? Uh, so at the end, it's not just the sound also, uh, because we can produce the sound by many different ways. There are some sounds in the bass, uh, bass uh, double bass, that are really, really close to a flute. So um, the idea of electronics is also to have this kind of expectation, basically. So I knew or I know that people would expect some kind of sounds, you know, like, oh, we will have maybe, I don't know, more dynamic range or maybe less dynamic range. Uh, maybe we will have distortion or maybe not. I don't know. So people have this kind of expectation. So I guess that is interesting to play around with that kind of uh, uh, expectations or, you know, necessities that we kind of evoke. Um, maybe from the title itself, you know, we create kind of a space. Uh, so the electronics for this piece has, I would say, four different kind of um, behaviors, again, like, mm -hmm. uh, and it's like every single um, option that we have for the electronics. Well, I, may, I imagine that nowadays we have actually more, um, but essentially we have a fits bar, Right. There are sections that are just triggering samples. Um, I have sections where I am performing the synthesizer. I have sections where I am processing sound live. And I have sections that are going uh, freely performed live, but I'm, do I'm doing kind of improvisation processing kind of thing. Okay. Uh, yeah. So those are like basically the four, uh, yeah, like treatments. Uh, and for instance, in the base, uh, in the first movement, um, uh, líneas rojas or red lines, I'm using a microphone for the bass clarinet. I am amplifying the bass clarinet, but also I am processing the bass clarinet through a change of events in Ableton Live. And very simple kind of, uh, uh, in terms of technical, you know, just one microphone and, and that's it. The same, same movement, I have some samples that I make in the studio. And then I trigger in then randomly. Mm -hmm. I just don't know the order of the samples. But and then I do in the processing life. I have some ideas, but and then I go in like more free. Just by the sound, uh, yeah. Yeah, just based on the sound uh, the moment. So I kind of tricking, moving the distortion, doing kind of treatment, doing some kind of, yeah, kind of processing right there on the spot. And I have, again, some tape parts that I just trigger in very specific parts. Um, and that's essentially yeah, how the electronics works in this piece. Um, for the entire uh, piece and then for this in particular movement um you know why the title retro why the tr why the title uh Linus rojas yeah so um when the orchestra you know the i guess that that was the concert master he was very excited for the idea of uh independence anniversary you know mm -hmm. and i was like very hesitant like no this is not <laughs> a good idea uh, I don't like 
in some cases being too explicit about things mm-hmm. and I like hiding things <laughs> or creating it's because I like ambivalence you know mm-hmm. and I guess that ambivalence spaces give us so much opportunity for interpretation you know for freedom for meaning especially it's not just one meaning you know it could be uh, many <laughs> different kind of you know views um so I was very like worried for for using that kind of context, and especially because f- for my own political views of uh, independency, mm-hmm. uh, it is true that we are not anymore part of the Spain. Uh, um, but in a way, we are still linked to many other kind of uh, states of power, you know, in terms of economics and. But also in terms of culture, some people in Colombia f- truly believe that McDonald's is a nice product because it's an American product, mm-hmm. and the contradiction is that it's actually better in Colombia than in the Colombia than in the states because they don't use the same potato paste or whatever mm-hmm. they use on Colombian potatoes. Right. So it's actually quite more more real in a way. Yeah. Um. But it doesn't mean that we are no, you know, in a way colonized in terms of, in terms of culture, you know. And so I was, you know, very worried for using that kind of uh, space or that piece. Um, and then I decided to actually use that opportunity, you know, to have that conversation. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And then I decided to use the Colombian flag colors which is and um, from the bottom is red uh, blue and yellow or the basic colors you know uh, the yellow one is bigger then we have the blue one and then we have the red one that is smaller uh-huh. so it, we have this tendency in music that we read from bottom to end so in that way it will be red blue and yellow and that is the order of the movement so the first movement is about red the second one is about blue and the third one is about yellow but uh, uh, I didn't again want it to be just I want to write about the colors but I, w- I was doing kind of sort of research research about the meaning of the colors uh, for the Colombian context and so I did a couple of you know readings and things and so, for instance, the meaning of the color have, you know, changed over time. Like, nowadays we have, and that's something that we're repeating in high school, and I still remember, that the yellow, the yellow is all the gold that we have, mm-hmm. you know. The blue is because we have the Atlantic and the Pacific, we have the Caribbean, so we are so rich in water, which is true, um, but it's owned by Canadian companies. And, and then we have the red, which means, you know, the blood of the people, uh, who fought for the independency, and that's kind of the kind of contemporary meaning of the flag or the colors. <clears throat> so, but if we go back, where you know everything was happening, the red at one time had a different meaning, and the same for the yellow. Actually, because uh, during the transition of the war, uh, the flag at one point didn't have the yellow. Mm-hmm. So it means that for them, the gold wasn't part of the conversation. You right. Know? 
and then it seems that in, in like years later the yellow means the golden hair of one of the princes in Spain. <laughs> so the meaning of the colors have different, you know, meanings and change have changed drastically over the years. So I was like, okay, this is a space for me to explore again this ambivalence uh, and this kind of openness uh, of meaning. And so when I was exploring the idea of red, uh, I found that kind of categorization of red lines or in singular red line means a space that you kind of transpass, cross. Mm-hmm. Because when you establish a... a at red line, you are limiting the space, and they say if you go, you pass that line, you are in a dangerous territory, right? Yeah. So it's mainly used like in context of war, or you know, like uh, I hear there is another expression here in the states, like that is red lining. No, when is to say, oh, this is a poor neighborhood or yeah, something. Yeah, it's it's, what is that? it's redlining. Yeah, redlining, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I learned about that idea here in the States. And that was interesting because it's always about red. You know, it's like red, the meaning of red. And so many territories in Colombia still have that kind of red lining in terms of war. Because there are some rebels in some places that you know that you cannot cross some states. Uh, or even being around. Uh, that has been changing, of course, but this is still something that... Uh, we need to struggle with. In any case, so the idea of redlining or the red line uh, was quite interesting for me. So I represent that idea in the music. And this, again, this is a sort of contradiction to the meaning because the piece is a concerto for orchestra, right? Mm-hmm. And we have those expectations like orc- concerto, they are going to play fast notes, you know, <laughs> they're going to play a tons of melodies and Sorry, uh, they're going to play a lot of melodies. <laughs> they're going to play some virtuoso sections really fast. Something very, you know, this kind of expectations that people have when they work concerto. Even yeah. in the most experimental spaces, we have that kind of tendencies. You know, when we say, oh, virtuoso, then we go crazy. Yep. Um, but and then I feel that actually playing a very slow piece of music is very difficult, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's really hard to play slow, but no one appreciates that kind of practice, you know? Like playing hard, very slow, seems boring. <laughs> and, but it has a lot of tension there. So I, I was like, I wanna use that idea. So the musicians are kind of freeze in, the, in a sort of space or register. So if you see the parts are really boring because the Goodwins, for instance, they play really high, or they play multiphonics. They don't do anything else, at least for the first one. <laughs> That's only what they play. And if you see, they play basically the same notes. Uh, so it's like very limited space. Like you don't go above or below this note, this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so that's that was kind of the ideas for the, for the, you know, limitations for the piece. And... And also the idea of distortion. There is one point where I try to push, you know, kind of the distortion where 
we just don't know what is going on, whether it's the orchestra or it's the electronics. It's like a, just a whole, a, like, unknown uh, material. And it's like we are kind of getting rid of the uh, body of the sound and we are just focusing on the sound, you know, like creating, again, that kind of limitation um, I, again, uh, in terms of sound and quality. Um, I guess that that's basically all for that piece. Oh, it has, of, again, some kind of uh, interactions. Um, maybe not in the same way as Never Was The Way, where you see the interaction in the score, where you quite perceive the changes. And this is more in terms of the texture or the meaning of the 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 uh, yeah the texture for me for instance when they play together they play the same pitch mm -hmm. yeah it has some meaning when they have those loops they will play freely and uh, when they have loops and they have over the loops they we have rhythm elements uh, and then what that means or what is happening there and. Um, so I, I like creating the kind of, you know, spaces where the, the whole orchestra is playing the same pitch, right? So I, I've been exploring that idea using different contexts and different kind of pitches as well. And it's really hard to find a pitch that everybody can play. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, it's really difficult. But for instance, the tuba could play middle E. Yeah. And then middle E is one of those pitch that I've been using. Middle C as well. Uh, but the idea, of course, you uh, from a theoretical point of view, is like a bad orchestration technique. <laughs> <laughs> because, right, we have a flute playing in the same register as the horns. And we could argue that, okay, the flute is just giving some color to the horns, but we won't hear that much yeah. the flute, and that's true. But in terms of psychology, the musicians in the orchestra, they know that they are playing the same pitch. Yeah. They know, and then you feel that in the concert. So when the first time that I asked them to play the same E, they didn't know who was playing, for instance. Mm -hmm. That was their, their first reaction. They didn't know what is this sound. Uh, not only because maybe they didn't have that kind of uh, uh, orchestration before, or maybe because they couldn't hear themselves. Something was happening, or something happened when we had this kind of behaviors. And so I like exploring that idea. So I have... The idea of unison or the idea that they play together, uh, like rhythmically speaking, you know, uh, or they don't play together, but they play the same pitch as well, for mm -hmm. instance, what happened. And then there are so many, you know, psychological effects in like in the hall and in the venue that are very interesting, like what happened if we all play, you know, we use the whole register, right? Um, but then we play as pianissimo as possible. 
Yeah. Again, it, mm-hmm. it will be like a bad orchestration technique <laughs> because some instruments will, you know, eventually will be more prominent. But what really is happening there is that if they are trying to play as, you know, as pianissimo as possible, first, it's impossible, which is true. We cannot play everybody playing as pianissimo as possible. We, but we, we have something and its density, right? Mm-hmm. It's so dense because there are so much air <laughs> in the space <laughs> that actually it's impossible to hear even mezzo forte. It sounds more like a forte feeling. And they could try, you could uh, actually write every single line in the way that they actually could play pianissimo. But because so many instruments <laughs> playing together, then we have a lot of tension. And that tension is impossible to be expressed in the score, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, and I did it just to explore what would happen if. So I did it, I write it. And then when I uh, arrived to the rehearsal, I was the first one to be surprised for the feeling, you know, like intensity or density here. This is really interesting, you know, and we don't see the, that kind of uh, uh, kind of expression just by looking at the score. Yeah. Um, mm. We have the, you know, the, our orchestration classes um, miss a lot of the actual, you know, perception of the sound. And, and again, I don't know, I, I just I, I just like exploring those ideas. So this piece has so many of those ideas. Like what happened if I, I don't know, everybody's playing a multiphonic uh, and then I have the electronics. So there are sections that I really don't know what is going on. Um, but and then I just go for it and, and see what happened. I like that idea of like the quote unquote bad orchestration, you know, like, of course, we're, you know, in orchestration class where we saw, okay, well, these instruments can go together. If you want to hear it, you got to make room for this or blah, 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 blah. But I mean, that idea, I think that idea of like bad anything is hopefully being kind of swept away at this point it's like it's not bad it's just not it's not in line with what has been dictated by hundreds and hundreds of years of teaching orchestration the same way so it's just Mm -hmm. another idea that um you know that will produce something you know and whether whether based on the context yeah whether or not that is that something is like good or bad is irrelevant it's does it do what it's supposed to do for the composer or the or the listeners or you know whoever you're considering in that in that equation so i, I yeah i like that. i really like that idea um so mm. w- can you tell me the the name of the um orchestra again yeah this is medellin philharmonic medellin uh which is one of the you know big cities in colombia um yeah, that is the orchestra. Cool. So this is uh, Linnaeus Rojas from the piece Retro.
All right, so uh, we've come to the last question, the one that I always ask all the composers and artists who are on the podcast. So how did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, I am a composer by chance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I didn't dream being a composer or an artist, whatever we call it. Um, I wanted to be an accountant. <laughs> really? And and I guess that's because I got an inception from a friend of mine when I was a teenager. I overheard that he had an uncle and he had a good job because he was an accountant. So I think that I, my teenager, you know, mine was like, that is a good uh, way of life, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, especially when you are in a context where Getting a job is maybe <laughs> the most, you know, important part. Yeah. And so <laughs> I guess that that was kind of, yeah, an inception because I just don't know why I wanted to be an accountant, to be <laughs> honest. And I guess that is because of that reason of, you know, having an unstable, you know, income, whatever. So in high school, I started, my major in high school was accounting. And then when I was kind of 14, yeah, almost 14, 15, uh, my parents, they bought a, this kind of a small Yamaha keyboards. Mm -hmm. So they want either my my brother uh, or me to learn some piano or keyboard to play in the church. Mm -hmm. So my father, he did a raffle because he was like, we don't have favors here. You brother and you are it's the same. So we're going to do a raffle. So I won the raffle and then I am here. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> man. I mean, that that even speaks to, you know, your your use of the like, OK, it's either going to go this way or it's going to go that way. And your life, is, you know, you can go down this path or that path and your your life is completely going to change. So the fact that you became a composer kind of almost by like what a flip of a coin <laughs> kind of. Yeah, 50 50. Um, yeah. And that is true because it's interesting that I don't just I just don't like drama in music that much. I mean, I enjoy some dramatic performances, and but in my music, I don't think that I go for that kind of uh, reactions or feelings. Yeah. But uh, when I see my life, it's all about that part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... And then I, I started, you know, keyboard, but it was just, you know, learning the skills. Uh, nothing, nothing really like, I want to study music or something. And then when I was doing some kind of internship uh, for two years, actually, every single day, like nine to five, uh, I was getting some, you know, money because of the internship, month by month. By month. Uh, and then by the end of the second year, I had two options, like either go to, you know, university, and study like at night and keep working or do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I decided that actually accounting, I feel, so I plan to imagine like my life in 40 years. And I was like, yeah, I could get this job and I could buy a house, get a car. My mom will be happy for having something, something. <laughs> and then I was like, no. <laughs> This is not me. Yeah. And then I decided to uh, 
basically gave up that kind of office job and he started studying music because at that time he was just like playing chords and uh, and that's it. So I was like, actually, I really like this kind of thing, you know, creating. Because when I was in the office, I wanted to make different colors for, I don't know, for presenting something for the list that we use. I wanted to change the color, the format, and that was like, you cannot change anything. This is for the company. The company has a specific rules. So I noticed that that was something uh, about my, you know, my identity as a creator. I don't know. And that I like modifying things. And uh, George Lewis says something about uh, ornamentation that is just beautiful. Like uh, some people don't really feel that they are creating, that they are just ornamenting or creating kind of decoration. Uh, but again, who is who uh, saying which is better? In any case, so um, I started music seriously when I was uh, yeah, 17, 18. Um, but I was very old for the conservatory, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but then I started uh, taking like harmony lessons in private. And I applied for a public university. I didn't <laughs> got accepted. Of course, I didn't play anything, you know. They asked me for the scales, so I played the scales. So they asked me for... <clears throat> Sorry. They asked me for some Beethoven. I didn't know how to play it. <laughs> and and then, but I, I kept practicing. And then one day I decided to apply for the National Conservatory because I knew that they have this composition program. Uh, but the requirement was to play again piano. And that was like one year after. So I was like, okay, I'm going to practice piano every single day. Uh, I've downloaded so many books on from the internet mm-hmm. i read all those books even before the school like harmony counterpoint <laughs> i didn't know what i was reading i was just reading like right. crazy and and then discovering music again illegally online like i remember when i found like jazz not from a movie like in the background you mm-hmm. know but literally like records and i was like in shock <laughs> yeah um, and then I was like, this is getting way better <laughs> in terms of, you know, listening and, and finding really interesting things. So I applied to the school um, and then I got it. So that was in 2010 uh, when I got into the National Conservatory. Uh, in Colombia, the degrees are usually five years mm-hmm. instead of four. Mm-hmm. And so I graduated in 2015. Awesome. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell people, you know, where they can find more of your music, uh, how to find you on like the, you know, any social media if they want to like uh, connect with you or reach out or anything? Yeah, sure. So um, my website is very simple, jamesdiaz.co, C-O, not com. So jamesdiaz.co. Uh, from my website, you could get my SoundCloud or all my information. Uh, I am on Instagram as James D as composer. And, and again, Facebook, James Diaz. Um, yeah, any, any, anyways, it's, um, it's the same. I have everything connected. <laughs> yeah, cool. 
Thank you so much for doing this, James. Robert, thank you so much for having me. I think that it's really cool. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.